Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. So 1 Corinthians 11.30 For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Kind of a strange verse. Paul is giving instructions to the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper. They are already practicing it, but they're doing it wrong. And for doing it wrong, this is the verse. But if you look up at 11.20 to 22, he describes what's going wrong. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. And so Paul describes what they're doing in the Lord's Supper. He says they're eating and drinking judgment unto themselves. And he apparently means this in an immediate practical sense. That is the manner of their practice. The way they are doing their Christianity is making them sick. And killing them. And I think our first impulse may be to dismiss this as, oh, that's some sort of crude, magical thinking on Paul's part. And in fact, I think many Christians today treat the symbolism of the Lord's Supper as if this is what it is about. That is, arguments about transubstantiation. You know, does it literally turn into the body and blood of Jesus? Or substantiation? Is it just the spirit of Jesus? Or those like Zwingli and many Protestants who just think it's purely symbolic? I don't think any of these are correct. As I argued last week, the Lord's Supper is the center of the founding of a new community, a new economics. That is the sharing of the food, originally a sharing of a common purse, a sharing of a new family. A new ethics of sacrificial love is enacted in the Lord's Supper. And as we talk, the Lord's Supper is first known as the love feast. That is, that here is a communal meal marking a a common purse. And correctly understood, the love feast, or Eucharist, we can say is the enactment of the body of Christ, or the person of Christ. And of course, when we say the body of Christ, we mean the person, that here is Christ embodied, seen in sacrificial love. And so literal reduction to blood and flesh, I'm afraid it reifies the sign, you know, the symbols, and misses the person of Christ and the purpose of the meal. 
which is obviously not to kill Christ, but to destroy what killed him in the lives of believers. And so we cannot dismiss the symbolism, but we must recognize what it signifies. The church is enacted by our sharing in the body. And the Lord's Supper is both the sign and the reality of our being the body. But the reality of the body inaugurated in both baptism and the Lord's Supper, this marks out a new community of meaning, a new way of life. But what if we get the meaning wrong? What if we miss the ethic? And that's what we're saying. There is a particular ethic involved in this new community. What if we misuse the body? And normally we think of meaning in positive terms as that, you know, which gives a, a kind of narrative whole and goal to our lives. But what if the story that shapes our lives is killing us? I think that's what Paul is saying. The Corinthians are good Christians, but they're failing to benefit from their faith. They're running over one another. They're devouring one another, not considering the other, and failing to understand the love of God that they share, that we share. We can say their religion is sick and is making them sick and in danger of killing them. Is Paul describing, you know, God striking them down because they desecrate the symbols? I don't think so. They are missing the fruit, the life of love of the Christian life. And so the notion even of a punishing angry God, like a father who can never be pleased, or maybe a system of acquisition and consumption, which can never satisfy, or an isolated sense of self focused on autonomy and choice. You know, what I'm describing is not simply the Corinthians. If you haven't noticed, I'm describing modern American culture. This may provide a religious, a capitalistic, an individualistic system of values, but the system itself may be diseased. And we're living in a time of increasing literal chronic illness higher rates of suicide, higher rates of cancer, diseases and forms of disease that we formerly did not even know existed. And I think we can trace the reason, the meaning systems, they're certainly necessary for survival, but they are also that which creates the environment of our life, potentially producing stresses and traumas as part of the system, which science is more and more linking with the increase of disease. And so I assume Paul is describing not some act of God striking down those Christians who abuse the symbols, but those who are missing out on the fullness of the love and life to be found in Christ. That is a healing love. It does give life. And so the first step, you know, in recognizing the role of culture, meaning, religion, 
physical health, you know, there is a kind of mind-body holism in which we, I think we just instinctively know this. Practically, we know that the body and the mind cannot be split. What we believe and think and experience, they are going to leave an imprint not simply on our spiritual health, but on our literal physical health. And so there are physicians such as Dr. Gabor Mate, I'm not sure I'm saying his name right, but they're beginning to explore the relationship between things like trauma and repression and the increase of the, a variety of diseases. And so rather than simply treating you know, the physical disease, Mate began to recognize that the root cause of disease can be linked to trauma. And by trauma, he doesn't just mean huge traumatic events, but just the daily traumas people experience. And he was a medical doctor in charge of the palliative care unit at Vancouver Hospital. And he noticed that patients with chronic illness shared an emotional history, quoting him, similar dynamics and ways of coping were present in the people who came to us for palliation with cancers or degenerative neurological processes like ALS. And in his private practice, he discovers the same thing, that patients with multiple sclerosis, inflammatory ailments of the bowel, such as ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, autoimmune disorders, bromyalgia, migraine, skin disorders, endometriosis, and many other conditions then, they're tied, he thinks, to a person's emotional history. And there's even a new field of medicine, psychoneuroimmunology, that traces the link between the brain and the immune system. And so emotional makeup and stress have been linked to diseases such as scleroderma, the majority of rheumatic disorders, inflammatory bowel disorders, diabetes, multiple sclerosis. And so he cites a study they did of medical students during exam time. And they discovered that during this period of stress that their immune systems were suppressed. A similar study that psychiatric patients who experienced loneliness were also their, their immune systems suppressed. Quoting him, even if no further research evidence existed, though there is plenty, one would have to consider the long-term effects of chronic stress. The pressure of examinations is obvious and short-term, but many people unwittingly spend their entire lives as if under the gaze of a powerful and judgmental examiner whom they must please at all costs. That is, our life story may be such that we're always under exam. And his description verges on the theological. I think there are certain forms of Christianity, certain forms of other religions that project onto God the role of examiner 
and making all of life a kind of final exam. This is precisely not what Paul is describing. That is, I, I fear that we might read this verse exactly wrong. At the deepest level, the level of experience and meaning, we may not recognize that we're filtering the world through an understanding which is sick, spiritually sick, psychologically sick, and physically sickening. There have been studies done, it's been noted that our culture is experiencing epidemic proportions of loneliness. An article in the Journal of American Medical Association refers to this epidemic that there is the death of one American every 5.5 minutes due to suicide or opioid overdose. There's an annual mortality rate of 162,000 Americans. And this journal is attributing it to loneliness. And this exceeds the number of deaths from cancer or stroke. Which, by the way, the, even the term loneliness, in the same article, a British researcher said that the term doesn't actually occur until 1800. So it's not simply that people are not connecting with others, bowling alone, as one social study put it, but the very notion of self is disconnected. Famous Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor describes it. He says, we are buffered selves. We conceive and experience the self not as in traditional societies, as porous and interconnected, but in an inner mental space. And so our self-conception, I think, creates the condition for the acute loneliness that we're seeing in the culture. The very concept of self, you know, kind of pits the self against others, and even within the self, think of Paul in Romans 7, there's a divided self. There's also a whole new field called neurotheology, which recognizes not only does our understanding of God shape our mental health, it shapes, literally shapes our brain. Recent studies in this field show that if you view God as an angry God, a punishing God, or as a loving God, this directly impacts the brain. Andrew Newberg, who is a leading researcher in this field, he scanned the brains of praying nuns, Sikhs, chanting Sikhs, meditating Buddhist practitioners, just to demonstrate the relationship between the brain and religious experience. Literally, you can see this in magnetic resonance imaging. I just been reading a book by Timothy R. Jennings, who is a medical doctor, and his, the name of his book, The God-Shaped Brain, How Changing Your View of God Transforms Your Life. And he compares the impact on the brain of a view of God, of a loving God, or of an angry God. Quoting him, brain imaging studies have demonstrated that the more time a person spends in communion with the God of love, 
the more developed the ACC, the ACC, the anterior cingulate cortex. Not only that, the person experiences decreases in stress hormones, blood pressure, heart rate, and the risk of untimely death. And so even in our mortal and defective bodies, love is healing. And conversely, the more time spent contemplating an angry, wrathful, fear-inducing deity, the more damage to the brain and the more rapidly one's health declines, leading to early death. All of that quoting Jennings. And it's not simply one's view of God. You know, religion may play a, a minor role in this, even if you're religious. That we're entering into our deepest understanding and experience of reality. And the tendency may be to project on God the wrong image. You know, an image of God as a kind of an extension of a bad father or a perverse superego the punishing father figure who personifies a retributive legal order. Maybe the inner pattern or the bent takes precedent and we just project that onto God. And so even getting rid of this God, maybe through atheism, it really doesn't help because we still have that obscene superego figure uh, a kind of understanding of uh, the punishing effects of reality. The law or father figure or the conscience. You know, even if you deny God, that is not deniable. And so maybe the real issue is not so much God with some people, but how to get rid of an oppressive experience. There's a, also another field called psychotheology. A new area of study which fuses psychology with theology, with a fuller reading specifically with the Apostle Paul. Psychoanalysis finds the completion of its categories and the resolution of the human predicament in theology. Jacques Lacan is a psychologist who is actually an atheist, but he reads the Apostle Paul and he says, oh look, he's identified the deep-seated human problem. Now he just happens not to believe in the cure that Paul offers. He only believes in the diagnosis. And so in this understanding, what Paul calls the body of death, the isolated interior notion of the self, it is a description of what Paul is describing in Corinthians as sickening and death-dealing. But of course, in psychoanalysis, in a Lacanian psychoanalysis, they don't go the second step in that Paul offers a cure being joined to the body of Christ. And that's what he's describing in Corinthians. And so as a result, in this form of psychoanalysis, you just have the superego. You have the death drive. There's no deliverance, really. And as a result, you can manipulate this, but really this dialectic that Paul describes between the I and the law, or between the ego and the superego, well, it's a permanent condition. If we go to Romans 7, 23 to 24, he talks about the body of death. And the body of death 
pits the members of my body against the law of my mind. And this makes me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Meaning systems, as we have them, take effect, I think, in what Paul is describing. In religion or economics or personal striving, that is this dialectic between the law, the law of the mind and the law of the body, the ego and the superego. And we know, you know, one scores points, gets ahead, establishes themselves according to this zero-sum game in which the scorekeeper, you know, who's the scorekeeper? Well, maybe it's God, maybe it's the superego, maybe it's some sort of cultural imperative. But the symbolic of this body of death, I think for many people, the culture or this perverse religion is the very substance of the meaning of their life. And it, it's making them sick. And that, I think, accounts for many of the chronic diseases that people literally have and the spiritual sickness. I think they're tied in together. And so the encounter with Christ brings an end, or it should, to meaning as we know it, right? But of course the opposite is also true, often the case, that our religion or that Christ is made to support the meaning systems in the world, be they particular atonement theories, nationalism, capitalism, or maybe some other measure of success. You know, we can take a common example. Education. You know, it's only judged meaningful if at graduation you get a job. Otherwise, it may be judged meaningless. And Christianity may be meaningful in this context only as it serves to bolster the goals of society makes me a better student, maybe a better politician. You get a good education, a good job, a happy family. What possible purpose then for a faith that does not serve and in fact maybe interrupts the meaning system, the accepted pattern of meaning in the world? And so the New Testament describes that culture, I think just human culture, has an endemic flaw and it's summed up in the term covetousness that you know this is the problem in Corinth greed desire Paul talks about it in many places but here in Corinthians let me give you one example 1 Corinthians 5 9 to 10 he said I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world the world is constituted by covetousness and to be shaped by the world is to be partake of its meaning system you can't get out of that by becoming Amish it pervades the world and this is what belief, this is what faith embraces. Unbelief cannot begin to fathom. Covetousness names the dynamic of the meaningful life of 
self-realization, you know, self-development. Paul talks about covetousness in Romans 7, 7, that it constitutes an ethos or orientation to the law. The picture is I'm ever striving and never achieving. And the demands for attaining and improving, they're constant. Think of the father figure that is never content. There is no achieving the object, the elusive object behind the law. This is the body of death in Paul's estimate. The alienated individual in relation to self is involved in a deadly struggle. I do what I do not want to do and what I want to do, I do not do. And the body or the self is objectified. He talks about the body as if it's not part of him in this false understanding. The choice is only how self-fulfillment is to be achieved. And the body then is just kind of an instrument in this. And this is reflected in modern medicine. That we look at the body like a machine, like an instrument. The heart is a pump. The brain is a computer. And I think we do the same thing in theology or in Christianity. We lose the holistic understanding that does not address the root of sickness. I think that's what Paul is doing. And so let's look at Paul's other usage of body pictured in the Lord's Supper. It's not the individual, but it's the body of Christ, the corporate body of the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. And of course he's talking about the resurrection body of Christ, the church, that it exceeds the possibility of meaning provided in the body of death. I think those are our two choices. In Romans 6, Paul uses a similar illustration in regard to baptism. There is a, a death, step one, you die, right? That dying, I think, is a dying to the meaning that this world would offer us. I think it's the death of meaning as we know it. The death associated with resurrection, that is, is total and final. And in this ultimate relinquishing of meaning, we're giving up on the meaning systems of this world. Then resurrection occurs. As Christ describes it in John 15, 1 to 5. Make your home in me as I make mine in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit all by itself, but must remain part of the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever remains in me, with me in him, bears fruit in plenty. For cut off from me, you can do nothing. I think if we practice Christianity wrongly, we fail to dwell in Christ, and he fails to dwell in us. But with Christ, this different environing, you know, it doesn't depend on the members of the body, on the heart, the lungs, 
or on the branches for life. In the body of death, I think that's the case. We kind of borrow life from other people, from the admiration of other people, the members of the culture. Or maybe in the physical body, the kind of fake life that we imagine that life comes from our lungs and our heart and our brain. But in Paul's imagery, it is only through being incorporated into the body of Christ. And he talks about the eye, the hand, the foot, has access to life only in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And this is what we celebrate. You know, the celebration and realization of being incorporated into his body in communion. And to turn to consumptive desire, what the Corinthians are doing, is to return to the body of death, which is quite literally, I think, Paul's description of why they're sick, why they're dying. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. They have turned to a covetous biting and devouring of one another. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. They have traded life, new life in the body for death. And this impacts them spiritually, it impacts them psychologically, and it impacts them and us bodily. So we can be made alive in Christ, and I think this affects every aspect of who and what we are. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.